See, a movie doesn't come all on one big reel. It comes on a few. So someone has to be there to switch the projectors at the exact moment that one reel ends and the next one begins. If you look for it, you can see these little dots come into the upper right-hand corner of the screen. In the industry, we call them cigarette burns. That's the cue for a changeover. He flips the projectors, movie keeps right on going, and nobody in the audience has any idea. Why would anyone want this shit job? Because it affords him other interesting opportunities. Like splicing single frames of pornography into family films. So when the snooty cat and the courageous dog with the celebrity voices meet for the first time in Real 3, that's when you'll catch a flash of Tyler's contribution to the film. Nobody knows that they saw it, but they did. Nice big cock. Hello, and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that hits you in the ear with nostalgia for all the good stuff you watched, read, and listened to in your youth. And regret for all the hours you wasted on stuff that turns out not to be so good. I'm Chris, your podcast host, most likely to look the way Meryl Streep's skeleton would look if you made it smile and walk around the party being extra nice to everybody. (laughs) Hi, I'm Becky, the podcast host, most likely to not have been fucked like that since grade school. (laughs) And I'm Seth, the host most likely to have some good news. I no longer have any fear of death, but I am in a pretty lonely place. No one will have sex with me. I'm so close to the end, and all I want is to get laid for the last time. I have pornographic movies in my apartment, and lubricants, and amyl nitrate. Seth, we have to record the podcast at some point. (laughs) Oh, oh, wait, we're not doing the pre-show stuff right now? We're actually rolling? Ooh. Who would have known that Chloe would have featured so heavily in our intros? (laughs) Two out of three. Only ladies for the intros. (laughs) In this very feminine film. (laughs) It's 2019, which means we are celebrating the 20th anniversary of the year 1999, which was a seminal year in cinema. This year on the podcast, we've already revisited some of the landmark films from just before the turn of the millennium. Frogs falling from the sky, rose petals bursting from a bosom, genitalia being thrust into a baked good. I was like, was that Boogie Nights? What was that? (laughs) Well, yes, probably. Go back and listen to the show, Becky. (laughs) And in this episode, we are serving up fists colliding with Brad Pitt's beautiful, beautiful face in what is arguably Pitt's most iconic and beloved role as the loose cannon anarchist Tyler Durden in Fight Club. We'll take the opportunity to talk about Pitt, who we have not actually talked about on the podcast. Has he been in a movie that we've discussed? No. Holy cow, three years and no Pitt? We've been pitless? Yeah, I mean, we have really done ourselves a disservice. Wow, I think it took long enough to get to Tom Cruise, but Pitt... Yeah. What a pity. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Worth it. He's been Worth saving that, that for three years, everybody. <laughs> and we'll also talk about the career of director David Fincher. And we will follow that up by breaking the first two rules of Fight Club, because this would be a very strange and short episode of the podcast <laughs> if we did not actually talk about Fight Club. Chris, I was going to say, you can't say anything. I'm sorry. It's been 20 years. They've, they've <laughs> got to loosen up those rules a little. Well, like, is there a statute of limitations for Fight Club rules? <laughs> I feel like there should be. Yeah. There's a 20-year sunset. Come on. I think that thing's probably been shut down by now. <laughs> Before we get started, I have a new review. Do you? I do. Actually, it was just a tweet. But it was a positive review of our show. Well, even if you write it down on a napkin and throw it away, we will find that and read it on the <laughs> podcast. So 
We, w- we accept any and all good reviews. So this comes from <laughs> Nikki Whitehead at the Nikki W. She writes, my fave podcast, getting me through the day with hilarity as always. When were your young show starting the Child's Play Chucky episode with this gem talking about the toys we played with when we were kids? Quote, I got lice and then there was a stuffed animal genocide in my household. And then there's a smiley, laughy, crying <laughs> face. So I've brought <laughs> people to that tears. Again? <laughs> that would be my quote, Chris. Uh, yes. <laughs> I am the one on this show who brings the tears. And the lace. (laughs) Both at the same time, I'm a double threat. (laughs) So thank you for that positive review at Nikki W. You are one of our favorite podcast listeners for reviewing us positively. Yes, it is a bribe system. You can quickly become our favorite by saying nice things about us. So yep. in the future, please feel free to tweet at us. Um, we will retweet and we will favorite and love and share. But also go to iTunes and give us a review there. Or just call us up or knock on our door. Carry your pigeons. <laughs> or show up at our workplace. <laughs> yeah. Do all that. Ooh, maybe a bit far. Bring donuts. I think this is going to be a very brief opening question, but I'm going to ask it anyways because <laughs> it was just too good not to. Have you ever been in a fight? <laughs> I knew that was going to be the question. <laughs> Particularly when you were young. And you mean a physical fisticuffs. <laughs> yes. Not an argument, but a knockdown, drag out brawl of some kind. As a four year member of the debate club, I can firmly. <laughs> Answering the affirmative. (laughs) Update for the listeners Chris has actually punched me. No. (laughs) No. Yeah, this is going to be a real quick opener. Uh, No. Okay, well, that does not surprise me with Seth. With Becky, I wasn't sure because you have a sibling. Did you guys ever. Oh, yeah, I mean, we like fought, but no, not like physically. Really? No. And I like, I would like play wrestle and stuff with my relatives and, you know, close friends, but not in a, not in the context of an outright fight. Okay, because me and my sister like had it out, like hitting, biting, punching, over what? Kicking, anything, like all the time. Biting and kicking? Yes. There it was it was it was a fight club. Does it count as a fight club if it's with your younger sister? I feel well, like no, the question, younger Becky, sisters were not allowed into the fight club in the movie. Becky, be fair, the question was not posed as a fight club. The question was posed as a fight at all. Okay. But even on that merit, Chris, would this happen in front of your parents or would this happen behind their backs? Mostly behind their backs, but then I think it would inevitably get like loud and angry enough that they would be drawn into it and then like yell at us and I don't really remember like punishment or you know anything like that, but I do remember just like we would get into it like for a long time, like Wait. probably longer than was You said your parents would yell at you. Would they break up the fight? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think once the parents started yelling, we would stop, I think. And at no point did they say, like, you know, like, maybe you guys shouldn't handle your disagreements by biting each other. (laughs) No, they would just beat us up. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Child (laughs) abuse jokes. (laughs) Um, No, well, I mean, they were against the fighting, but in the passion of the moment when someone is playing with your toy and you don't want them to, you lose any sense of reason and you punch them in the face. That, that is... no, no, you do that. <laughs> Outside of your sister, have you ever been in a fight? <laughs> Not as a child. <laughs> <laughs> Only for money. <laughs> as an adult, eh, you know, maybe once or twice. How many people have you punched? <laughs> None. None? <laughs> Not all fights are punching. <laughs> you can throw things. Oh, okay. All right. You asked this question. <laughs> 
I was curious if you had ever, because no. especially because you guys are the same gender, and it's probably more. No, common. females work mm. internally, and they just make your inner life uh, a complete turmoil. <laughs> oh, so have you ever been manipulated? Oh yes, countless times. <laughs> Good. Okay. Oh my god. See, we didn't do that. We just hit each other. <laughs> Yeah, it actually, compared to Becky's, yours seems like a bit of a cakewalk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just as a single child speaking here uh, from an objective standpoint. We don't put each other in the hospital, we put each other in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> ooh, ooh, I don't know. I don't know how those bounce out now. I don't know, insurance covers hospital bills more readily than it covers therapy. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, I think maybe mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> kicking the shit out of someone is the healthier choice. Yeah. Yep. Well, that will provide a nice lead-in <laughs> into the life of David Andrew Leo Fincher. He was born in Denver, Colorado in 1962, the son of a reporter and a mental health nurse. The Finchers moved to California when David was young, two doors down from George Lucas. Fincher grew up with films like American Graffiti, Dirty Harry, and The Godfather filming nearby. A behind-the-scenes film about the making of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid inspired him to be a director at the age of seven. Fincher was all set to start a film course in high school when his parents decided they were moving to Oregon. David Fincher was pissed. So instead, he worked as a projectionist at a local movie theater and a production assistant at a local TV news station, as well as a busboy and fry cook until he was 18 and moved back to Marin County to work at Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic. Though he started off doing grunt work, he quickly rose to doing second unit and visual effects work on films like Return of the Jedi. Wow, I had no idea. I had no idea of any of this. I did not know this either. And by the age of 20, he was directing his first major commercial. He went on to direct commercials for major brands, including Nike, Coca-Cola, Chanel, and music videos for artists including Paula Abdul, Aerosmith, Billy Idol, The Rolling Stones, George Michael, Michael Jackson, and Madonna. Very famous, iconic Madonna videos. Yeah, his video for Vogue is one of the most iconic music videos of all time. Like, I would definitely say top 10. And I would say Express Yourself is definitely, like, in the top somewhere as well. Mm -hmm. And you can hear all about us talking about that in episode 35. One thing he said he liked about music videos is that no one knows who directs them, so you can be really experimental, and everyone just blames the artist if they don't like the video. (laughs) He spent about a decade on commercials and music videos, and then in 1992 made his feature directorial debut with Alien 3. (laughs) Which you can uh, hear all about, our thoughts, in episode... 17. (laughs) Yes. That film followed Ridley Scott's Alien and James Cameron's Aliens, both of which are considered among the best sci-fi films ever made. Alien 3 is not. (laughs) I think we all agreed when we talked about that movie that that was the worst of the original four (laughs) Alien films. And uh, David Fincher agrees. He has said that no one hates Alien 3 more than he does. He was really pushing for a higher quality film and kept butting heads with the studio who basically just cared about it opening big. And I think, like, Alien 3 gets kind of left out of discussions of David Fincher's work. Like, I I don't think people really blame him for it. Because most of his work, if I'm remembering correctly, is very much his vision. And it seems like he just was, like, a work for hire for this already running franchise. Yeah, you can definitely see his stamp on the rest of his movies, and that one is, like, kind of, like, in certain visual ways, but I think it just shows that he is probably not the one to, like, direct your third in a franchise movie. Like, he needs to have a lot more control and be, like, kind of guiding the vision of the project. You really see David Fincher's style emerging with his second movie, which is 1995-7. That's his second movie? Uh I I wasn't going to jump the gun in saying that, but, like, I was going to say, like, that's what I think of as the first David Fincher movie. 
Absolutely, yeah. It feels like a debut in a lot of ways. Wow. Not not because it's like amateurish or anything, but just because it's like that was the movie where people like took notice of him and he became like a name director who was like, oh, like he definitely has a vision. Mm-hmm. The script was written by Andrew Kevin Walker and rewritten many times to fit the mold of a more conventional detective movie. It was sent to Fincher, who loved the twisted ending and the fact that it ends up being more of a meditation on evil than a police procedural. But when Fincher explained that, it was discovered that he had been sent the wrong draft. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> David Fincher had been sent the first draft of the screenplay, which is was the daring draft, and that was obviously the vision that he had for the project, so he's... They threw out all the more conventional drafts and did the first version. What was the draft he should have seen? Like, how did that end? What's in the box? It's Chinese takeout. (laughs) (laughs) Let's all sit down together and... Let's talk out our disagreements. (laughs) Al Pacino was originally considered for the role of Detective Somerset, which ended up going to Morgan Freeman. Detective Mills is played by one William Bradley Pitt, born in Shawnee, Oklahoma in 1963. Pitt attended Kickapoo High School in Missouri (laughs) and then studied journalism at the University of Missouri, but two weeks before completing his coursework, decided to move to Los Angeles instead. He had small TV and film parts in the late 80s and then broke out in a supporting role as a bad boy love interest in 1991's Thelma and Louise, which made him an instant sex symbol. It's pretty sexy in that movie. Yeah, and all movies. (laughs) (laughs) He followed that with Cool World, A River Runs Through It, Interview with the Vampire, and Legends of the Fall. And in this era, I would say Brad Pitt was more known as, like, a pretty boy than a serious actor. He was, like, a capable leading man, but I don't think anyone took him, like, super seriously. When did 12 Monkeys come out? Was it the same year? Yes. 95? Yeah, so it was, like, really, like, 7 and 12 Monkeys, both coming in the same year that made him, like, a serious actor. Because he was nominated for an Oscar for 12 Monkeys. I would say it made him also almost like a character actor. Yeah. Because um, 12 Monkeys is such a strange role that you wouldn't expect somebody, like, a leading man like him to take, but he did excellently, and he got an Oscar nom. Um, And he's done a lot of roles like that that are really kooky and weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he kind of bounces back and forth between, like, doing a few, like, leading man roles, and he's, like, kind of, like, the handsome leading man for a while, and then he, like, does, like, a couple of weird things. Like, definitely the roles that he's best known for, I think, are all, like, the kookier ones and not, like... Oh, I was going to say the opposite. Really? Yeah. (laughs) 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 We'll we'll, we'll get there. (laughs) Come on. Do me just one favor. Why? Why? I don't know why. I don't know. Never been in a fight. You? No, but that that's a good thing. No, it is not. How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? I don't want to die without any scars. So come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. Oh, God. This is crazy. You should go crazy. Let her rip. Hey, I don't know about this. I don't either, but who gives a shit? No one's watching. What do you care? Wait, what? This is crazy. You want me to hit you? That's right. What? Like in the <laughs> face? <laughs> Surprise me. Motherfucker! You hit me in the ear! Well, Jesus, I'm sorry. Ow! Why the ear, man? I fucked it up. No, that was perfect. I was going to ask you guys, just since we haven't talked about Brad Pitt, like, what is your pit story? (laughs) Wow, Chris, are you going to pit us against each other like this? Yes, I am. I'm leaving. Why is that? Is that Brad of me to do? Wow. Ain't too Brad to beg. I think I had a crush on Brad Pitt when <gasps> I first saw Seven. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm very seven. shocked that someone is expressing attraction toward Brad Pitt. You're a real outlier, Becky. <laughs> He's real cute in that movie. <laughs> and I don't even care that he has like the 90s 
wall of hair. Like, I'm into the... I just think he's so cute in that movie. I don't think I've really had much opinions growing up besides, oh, he's cute and I like this movie, so I got a crush on him when I was like 13, but was only confined to that movie. As the years went on, you just realize, oh, he's a really good actor. He's not just a pretty boy. Mm -hmm. I like him in a lot of movies. I'm not like obsessed with him or anything, but I think that he's established himself as not just a pretty face, but like a very good actor. I don't know exactly what my first Brad Pitt movie was, but if it wasn't Seven, I think it would have been Twelve Monkeys. Hmm. And I know that I saw Seven in high school, and uh, like on the pit of it all, I was really surprised at how good a performer I found him to be Like from the start, from the very first time I saw him. I don't know if I'm disagreeing with either of your kind of pit positions here. I find him to be rare in that he can convincingly be both a leading man who is Brad Pitt playing a character, or a kooky off-the-wall character actory disappearing into a role. I think the only few remaining quote-unquote leading man types usually aren't believable when they do off-the-wall character performances, because you're always judging them through the prism of their leading man image. But with Brad Pitt, I think, especially at this time, has been able to like straddle both of those approaches very effectively. Yeah, I mean, we just kind of brought up Tom Cruise as a comparison, just because they are both very attractive men and leading men. But, like, we talked about Tom Cruise very, very rarely breaking out of his Tom Cruise mode, even though, like, his performance in Magnolia is probably the best he's ever been. But he does not usually take those risks. And Brad Pitt seems like someone who actually really enjoys taking those risks and, I think, thrives more when he does. I don't know that I had, like, strong opinions on Brad Pitt. I think for the 90s, at least, like, up until probably Fight Club, I saw him as more of a generic leading man type and the movies like Legends of the Fall always seem to kind mm-hmm. of be like more the image with him like the, like the long blonde hair and like like handsome and I think I saw that movie like one time and, and I think he's like fine in, in all those movies probably but they're not movies that really like jump out at you and like, no, like the movie Troy uh, yeah I've never even seen that but it just it's seems like why, why do I want to see that but I would love seeing Brad Pitt in like Inglorious Bastards where he's doing something really interesting mm-hmm. and you know like now that you've said those titles I realize that I don't deliberately avoided any of those movies that sounded sappy or river runs through it i never have seen that movie didn't see meet joe black like i i kind of consciously avoided that stuff because and i think it probably would have complicated my view of him a bit more but maybe not too much though because it's like he was doing those movies at the same time that he's doing these very serious and very still esteemed performances yeah, for me, like, he was definitely much more of a presence in magazines than he was in movies for me, like, in the 90s. Such a cover girl. <laughs> so Seven was released on September 22nd, 1995. Reviews were positive, but not as positive as you might think. It has a 65 on Metacritic. What? It is tied for Fincher's third lowest with Panic Room. What? Yeah. I mean, that's saying something for Fincher, I think. <laughs> yeah. Rita Kempley of the Washington Post. <laughs> Back on the Rita beat. <laughs> She said, Seven is a decidedly medieval enterprise, darker in text and tone than a gothic cathedral by the light of the moon. Sometimes the film is so murky, you have to wonder, is it art or did Fincher just forget to pay the electric bill? (laughs) That was a positive review, by the way. You can't really tell. (laughs) That's Rita's usual effervescence. (laughs) Elvis Mitchell of the New York Times said, not even bags of body parts, a bitten off tongue, or a man forced to cut off a pound of his own flesh keep it from being dull. There were a lot of reviews that said it was boring, that it was too dark, um, too dark lighting-wise, like that you couldn't see what was going on, that it was just too grimy. 
Um, how big of a hit do you think Seven was? I want to say it was big, not like Titanic big, but big over a hundred million. I want to say it was not a big hit in the in the world. How much do you think it made in the world? Over a hundred million. It's under a hundred million. <laughs> One dollar. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you prices right me? Seven gross a hundred million in the U.S. and three hundred twenty-seven <gasps> million worldwide. What? Yeah. What? You know why I think it was a big hit? It's because I remember the MTV Movie Awards that year, and <laughs> it. I'm pretty sure it won Best Movie, and it was the, up against Clueless. <laughs> the only award show that mattered. <laughs> Because something like that, it's not like an Oscar movie. Like, maybe right. now it would be, but, like, yeah. back then, it wasn't. Like, it was too, like, dreary. But yeah, way too dark. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember um, <laughs> the movie was ruined for me at the MTV Movie Awards. They did, like, a whole thing, like, ruining the what's in the box. Oh. That's crazy. I had no idea this was as big of a hit as me it was. Neither. I knew it was a respected film and probably did well, but, like, I, I would never have guessed these numbers, especially, like, worldwide. Um, it was fittingly the seventh highest grossing movie <laughs> in the world that they year. They did that on purpose. <laughs> Those marketing geniuses. They stopped. They're like, okay, no more money. We're at number seven. That's where we want to be. I can't no, believe it was number seven that year. Yeah. Oh my God. And it was only 40 million away from being number one. Like the number one movie was Die Hard with a Vengeance. So like, wow. Like a few, a few extra bucks and it, like, it's crazy that it, it was that big. It wasn't Braveheart in 95? Mm-mm. I'm surprised. In the U.S., it was also number one for four weeks and set a record for the highest ever September opening at the time. Wow. So, go seven. It was nominated for one Oscar for Best Editing, losing to Apollo 13. It didn't get nominated for Screenplay? That's surprising too, isn't it? Yeah. Really or Production Design? Pitt was also nominated for an Oscar, like I said, for a Supporting Actor, but for 12 Monkeys. He lost to his seven co-star Kevin Spacey, another twist-ending villain role in The Usual Suspects. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I was wondering when The Usual Suspects came out. Same year. It was a big year for Spacey. Kevin yeah. Spacey being a creepy <laughs> asshole. Last year was a worse <laughs> year for him being a creepy <laughs> asshole. Yeah, like, in retrospect, pretty much every year was a banner year for Kevin Spacey being a creepy <laughs> asshole. <laughs> I tried to play husband. I tried to taste the life of a simple man. It didn't work out. So, I took a souvenir her pretty head. What's this talking about? Give me your gun. What's going on over there? Put the, put the gun I down. I saw you with the box. What was in the box? Because I envy your normal life. Put the gun down, David. It seems that envy is my sin. No, what's in the box? Not taking, give me the what's gun. in the fucking box? Give me the gun. So, yeah, we'll talk about seven for a few few minutes, maybe seven minutes or so. <laughs> seven uh, minutes in heaven. <laughs> I'm not sure that's where this movie goes. I watched this movie again, and I've always enjoyed it. I think the reputation of it is after maybe The Silence of the Lambs. is kind of like the defining serial killer movie of the modern era. Do you guys like Seven? Seven was one of my movies growing up. You know how you just like, these are my movies and you show them to people and you own the DVDs and you watch them over and over and you watch the director's commentary. It just feels like your movie. That was one of my movies. So I know this movie very well and I rewatched it, but I didn't have to because it was almost frustrating because I was like, I'm going to sit down and watch Seven. I'm not going to be distracted because I'm going to like sit and like 
watch it. And I was just like, I know every line of this movie. <laughs> like, I couldn't, like, distance myself. Was the movie actually on, or were you just playing it in I your I could have just played it in my head. Like, it w- was almost boring because I knew everything. Like, I've gotten no distance from it. I probably watch it once a year. That said, it's amazing. I love it. Um, I think it could have been made today. It looks as fresh as possible. Like, there's nothing in it that's dated. Um, everything is amazing. The production design continues to blow me away. Um, the, the the opening credits using Closer, like a remix of Closer, which is interesting because David Fincher later would work with Trent Reznor many times. It's just perfect. I think it's a perfect movie. It's great. I even liked it despite the Kevin Spaceyness of it because I think, you know, his character is talked about throughout the movie, but he's not really in it all that much. I just love it. I think it's fantastic. It's perfect. So you're neutral. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it so much that I shouldn't watch it for like 10 years so it can yeah. be fresh. I feel like you really deserve some distance from it. <laughs> from uh, seeing Seven. Yeah, over no, it's, over. it's been several years since I've watched Seven. Uh, I do own it on DVD. I did not have time to rewatch it before we recorded, but I totally agree with Becky that it's a perfect movie. Um, I, I do see it as the first David Fincher movie, and I think you could not have been stronger out of the gate with the first movie that you had your like direct directorial stamp on. I think on every level, this establishes the level of craft uh, in storytelling and direction in production design and cinematography and editing, like all of that stuff that I associate with David Fincher um, at his best. Um, And it bears stating that I think he's usually at his best. Like there are very few things I would consider a real misfire from David Fincher that I've ever seen. Even panic room has a lot of enjoyable stuff in it, in my opinion. And I think it gets kind of unfairly panned only because his other movies are so perfect technically and otherwise that like, I think it only looks bad in comparison. Um, But like seven, I love the cinematography. I think it's insane that critics would complain about how dark it is. I think it sets the standard for kind of cinematography in like the, the late nineties, early two thousands, super contrasty, super dark. Fincher is to me, a director I associate as being like more of an auteur than most, even though we does do a lot of kind of genre heavy movies. Are we still are we talking about David Fincher here? Because yeah, I think he's spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> Besides Alien Three, I don't think there's ever been a David Fincher movie I didn't like. Yeah. He I think he's like in my like top three favorite directors ever. I was looking at my movie collection and I'm old and I still have DVDs. <laughs> like physical DVDs. And I think it's like probably him and Spielberg are tied for like how many movies from a director I have like in my collection. There's just it's so good. Like all of them are timeless they don't look dated they look so fresh and like whoever he's working with for cinematography like it's amazing and his movies are always just so atmospheric there's an episode of community which is so clearly based off of like (laughs) david fincher movies and they just like nailed it (laughs) and i didn't even realize like he could be his own genre until i saw this episode and i was like this is perfect like they'd even have to say the the words david fincher to be like it's a david fincher episode just with the way it looked and like what it was about about like somebody committing crimes and serial killer kind of things and like the blue lighting like the tint on it I loved it. I I just, I will watch anything he ever does. 
Yeah, same here. I aside from Alien Three, I own all of his movies and watch most of them like fairly frequently. Like I think the worst of them is very good, <laughs> and the best is like amongst the best films ever made. So anything that he does, I'm automatically like interested in. I think he brings such a level of quality to what he does. He is definitely my favorite director's commentary person. Oh, like, he's amazing. I don't he always amazing listen commentary. to commentaries. They can be actually like pretty boring on on a lot of movies. But his are always good. And, like, I think I've listened to the commentary on every one of his movies. Just because he always... He has such insight and, like, his attention to detail is just insane. And when you watch one of his movies, which I I did for a couple of these in the era that we're talking about, and just, like, hear what thoughts went through his mind in every scene and how much he cared about every single little detail. It's intimidating as someone who also, (laughs) you know, wants to make films and is like, oh my god, I have to... (laughs) I have to contain all of that in my mind (laughs) but also just like so impressive and so interesting if I was gonna you know have one person to be like a mentor or like to teach me everything they know about filmmaking I would Mm -hmm. go to him just because I I feel like he has been at that level since this movie and this movie in particular has aged really well it's one of those movies that was I don't know if it was ahead of its time but it just like made enough of an impression that so much stuff feels now like seven like there were there were a bunch of ripoffs like in the later 90s of like other serial killer movies that obviously were not as good as this one. The Bone Collector (laughs) Kiss the Girls and stuff like that. Oh yeah, that was clearly trying to be seven. This sets the visual tone for all of those movies. There were so many of those. Like Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Like there's so many more of those movies. Truly, like it feels like everyone followed Fincher for the past several decades after Seven came out. Yeah, and there there were just a couple of details that jumped out at me watching it this time. One, Morgan Freeman's character is a detective who's retiring at the end of this week, supposedly, as as detectives <laughs> often are when uh, mm-hmm. movies begin. <laughs> is he also uh, getting too old for this shit? He, I don't believe he voices that, but okay. it reads on his face. Yeah, totally there. Is he working with a loose cannon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he might be. This is basically just lethal weapon, but a very good version. <laughs> There's a scene where he's, he's like, basically said, like, I'm not going to get involved in this case. And then he's, like, sitting at his desk, and there's someone, like, scraping his name off the door, like, while, like, some of the most, like, interesting facts of the case are coming up. And he's, like, learning that this is going to be, like, a serial killer, and this killer has, like, done all these intricate puzzles. And he's, like, trying so hard to be, like, I'm not going to do this. And there's just, like, <laughs> the fact that, like, his name is being erased at that moment. He's, like, stop erasing my name like because it's bothering him in the scene but it's also like he can't like let himself not be here and there's just all these like ways that just little things in the scene that are happening in the background comment on the themes of the story yeah this is just such an intelligent there's like the screenplay is amazing I think and the way that it ends you know just as like this kind of bitter quote from uh, Morgan Freeman basically saying that the world is a terrible place but he's still gonna fight for it yeah yeah just and it's this character who's retiring in large part because he finds the world so depraved and just seeing uh, Brad and Gwyneth together, like, there, there's been so much uh, hullabaloo over Brad and uh, Jennifer and Brad and Angelina Angie, yeah. that uh, you almost forget about Brad and Gwyneth. But man, like, they talk put about her a in 90s a box. couple. Yeah, 90s power couple for sure. Yeah, there's a little goop. There's a goop subscription box at the end. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's in the box. Goop products. <laughs> they CGI'd that into the recent deluxe special edition. <laughs> And Kevin Spacey is actually quite great in this role. No, he is. I he him. is. And I, I think him and it hurts. Yeah. And, and, and hurts. Becky, like, I think it'll not be as tough to rewatch it because I think that, like, 
evil is the main character in this movie, <laughs> not Kevin Spacey's character. You know, and it's like that evil is vessled through so many other people and experiences in the movie. Yeah, he was not even like credited for the movie until like the last like and that end was, of the movie. That and was so. one of the things that like the first time I saw it blew my fucking mind so much. Where it was like, wait a minute, like it's Kevin Spacey as the guy, and That's somehow right. it had never been spoiled for me. No, yeah, it wasn't. That and part wasn't spoiled. It was such an effective reveal. Like it totally got me. And you know, I would say that there are other filmmakers. like like Christopher Nolan, for instance, who are often near the level of like, so good at crafting the kind of Swiss watch of a plot, executing a plot device with that with that much precision. But David Fincher, when he does it, just it has so much more humanity to me. And I think that's a reflection of writing too, but it is also like in the direction. I 100% agree with that is that Nolan often kind of misses the more human element and is just doesn't seem focused on performance. And there are good performances in his movies, but they don't necessarily feel like because of him, you know, like they feel incidental to what's going yeah, on. <laughs> and and you can tell Fincher is including the performance in that technical aspect. Like, that's one of these elements that is so crucial to him. It, it's interesting that this movie set his career off, but also, like, I think Zodiac is one of the best movies ever made. It's my favorite of his. But, like, very much in the vein of this. And then the show Mindhunter, also. Like, he's definitely got a serial killer thing going on. <laughs> yeah, and- I've been watching that right now, season two. It's good. He's dr- I think he's really directed good. every episode. <laughs> yeah, he directed, I think, most of them. So Fincher followed up Seven with 1997's The Game, starring Michael Douglas, and no psycho bitches. So we won't talk about it. <laughs> the movie was released on September 12th, 1997, and it made $48 million in the U.S. and $110 million worldwide. It is a 61 on Metacritic, so also, like, mildly positive reviews. Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars and said the movie is like a control freak's worst nightmare. <laughs> Uh, Charles Taylor of Salon.com said, The game continues Fincher's penchant for underlighting scenes and creating showy little visual mood pieces. It's a small mercy that, unlike Seven, the game isn't repulsive or pretentious. Well, not much. But Fincher is still working on the assumption that he has better things to do than entertain an audience, which would be fine if he weren't drawn to such slocky material. Yeah, that was actually like pretty representative of a lot of the reviews of Seven and the game and just Fincher in general at that point, which is weird looking back on it because now he's very well respected. Like, I don't think there's right, like, many such critics. a critical favorite now. Yeah, That's... not many critics would dare like call him like schlocky or whatever. <laughs> right. But that's what he was considered at the time. It, weird how history rewrites itself. I think maybe also those two movies back to back, like now we've seen he can do the social network and he can do Benjamin Button. Like he's done a lot of different things. So he's not like a one trick pony and only deals with like gross, like macabre things. Mm-hmm. This is for you. You should. Well, what do you get for the man who has everything? Consumer Recreation Services. Well, I do have golf clubs. Call that number. Why? They make your life fun. Fun? You know what that is? You've seen other people have it. It's an entertainment service. An escort service? A profound life experience. So did you guys see the game either when it came out or ever since? 
I remember not liking it so much, but that was a long time ago when it first came out on DVD, and I want to see it again. I did see the game. I think I saw it around the time I first saw Seven, slightly after, and I enjoyed the hell out of it. I thought it was a really great Michael Douglas performance, and I liked the 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 whole setup of it. Yeah, it's it's weird that anyone would call it schlocky. If anything, I do think it has a bit of the more, I wouldn't say it's a light breezy tone, but it has more of like an adventurous feel to it, I think, than like Seven does. Yeah, I think this is a really fun movie. It it was, I think, yeah, my first Fincher movie because I saw it in theaters, unlike Seven or even Fight Club. I feel like it is the most Michael Douglasy Michael Douglas you could ever get. <laughs> He's a lonely old rich man who's he cranky. needs a, a hot woman to have sex with who's a little bit dangerous <laughs> though to make it a true Michael Douglas movie. I mean, there's sort of that because there's a there's a female in here that they don't really have like a love connection. She's not a She's not Sharon Stone or Gene Triplehorn or Glenn Close or Demi Moore. Are there more? There are more. I mean, the movie is very implausible, but it's really fun. And I just bought the Criterion Collection disc because it's the only Fincher movie that's on the Criterion Collection. Weird. And he has a commentary on it. And once again, I very much enjoyed his insights. And his explanation of the movie was that it doesn't necessarily make sense, but the game is all about making the Michael Douglas character feel like he's in a movie. So it's basically like a very non-hero type having all these experiences that like a normal action hero would have. And from that perspective, I thought it was really interesting just... And and just this movie could have been kind of schlocky, but I think the way that Fincher directs it and brings like a lot of like actual seriousness to it um, really elevates it way beyond like what it could have been like if Joel Schumacher or somebody had made it. And that will take us into Fight Club. Shh, don't talk about Fight Club. All right, we're breaking all the rules. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't take us long, but we got there. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Third rule of Fight Club, someone yells stop, goes limp, taps out. The fight is over. Fourth rule, only two guys to a fight. Fifth rule, one fight at a time, fellas. Sixth rule, no shirts, no shoes. Seventh rule, fights will go on as long as they have to. And the eighth and final rule, if this is your first night at Fight Club, you have to fight. Fight Club is based on the novel by Chuck Palahniuk, published in 1996. It was his first published novel. Palahniuk is from Washington State, like me. Oh, so you're like the same. (laughs) Yeah. You're the same person. The book is based on a fight he got into on a camping trip with people who were playing their music too loud. Oh, God. He got into a fight and had two black eyes and then showed up for work the next day. And people were just like, hey, how was your weekend? And he was all, like, bruised. And he was just like, fine. And they didn't call him out on it. And so that was, like, Hmm. the inspiration for just, like, if you look bad enough, no one will actually say anything about (laughs) it. Because they're all too afraid of, like, what you are actually doing. And they'll just, like, kind of politely That's really funny. Cool. Hmm. He also worked as a hospice escort at a certain point in his life, providing transportation to the terminally ill to support group meetings. So you can see where a lot of the inspiration for this book 
wow. came from. He is also a member of the Cacophony Society, which is a tamer version of Project Mayhem that does like elaborate pranks and stuff. So, um, <laughs> do their pranks usually involve dynamite? One hopes not. <laughs> I think they're a little tamer than that. Okay. <laughs> Water balloons. And he is a distant nephew of Jack Palance. Interesting. Chris, bring in all, all the trivia. <laughs> all the facts. The project was bought by 20th Century Fox. Fincher had an awful experience at the studio working on Alien 3, but all those people had since been fired. Buck Henry, the writer of The Graduate, was originally considered to adapt it. Wow. <laughs> but Jim Oles ended up getting the job. Peter Jackson, Danny Boyle, and Brian Singer were all considered to direct, but Fincher pursued the project. He originally wanted Janine Garofalo to play Marla Singer. I can see it. Yeah, she didn't want to do the sex scenes, so uh, she passed. <laughs> Winona Ryder, Courtney Love, and Reese Witherspoon were also considered. Huh. I could see all of them. I can see I Reese, Reese, Reese rocking some Reese. dark dark hair. No, and... I couldn't see no? that. I sure thought she was too young, which I think she would have been. Oh, she was still playing like high school at the time. Yeah. At oh, the yeah. time, yeah. Maybe now, yeah. Courtney Love would have been. Winona pretty, Ryder, for sure. Yeah. Winona Ryder would have been interesting as Marla. The studio wanted Matt Damon or Sean Penn for the role of the narrator, and Russell Crowe was originally pursued for the role of Tyler Durden. Eventually, they wanted a big star. Pitt was in a bit of a slump following Seven and Twelve Monkeys. He had been in Sleepers, The Devil's Own, Seven Years in Tibet, and Meet Joe Black, all of which did okay, but none of them were, like, huge hits or, like, cultural milestones. And Meet Joe Black, in particular, was considered a big failure. Yeah, that was a well-known dud at the time. Like, I remember that being a flop. It costs, like, $90 million to make. That is insane. <laughs> All that I've seen from Meet Joe Black is that scene where he gets hit by a million cars. <laughs> I don't know what this movie is. Does he play the devil? What is it? He's death. He is death. Yes. But he's hot death. Hot death. <laughs> Bring on the death. The actors studied taekwondo, boxing, and soap making to prepare for their roles. Brad Pitt also had his teeth chipped so that he would be less perfect. And then they were restored afterwards. <laughs> Fight Club was 138 days of shooting. Wow. There are 300 scenes in it, and uh, it shot three times more film than most. So... <laughs> They were, they were busy. Did they just really not know what they wanted? <laughs> like, they just got a lot of, of There's a lot content. of locations. There's so, there's a lot so of, like, many locations. Super quick, like, cuts to scenes mm. and back, so. Yeah, there is a lot just technically that goes into it, even in moments where the plot is pretty straightforward. Fight Club was released on October 15th, 1999. The budget was $63 million. It grossed $37 million in the U.S., and the total gross was $100.9 million. I'm surprised that's it. Yeah, it was a flop, actually, at the time. That's crazy! The Metacritic score is 66, so not particularly well-reviewed, about huh. the same as, like, his last few movies. And reviews were very, very mixed as well. Wesley Morris of the San Francisco Examiner said it's the rawest, most hot-blooded, provocatively audacious, dangerous movie to come out of Hollywood this year. So there were a few, like, champions of the film. A lot of the reviews were more like Lisa Schwartzbaum of Entertainment Weekly. She said, David Fincher's dumb and brutal shock show of a movie floats the winky, idiotic premise that a modern-day onslaught of girly pop-cultural destinations, including but not limited to IKEA support groups and the whole Starbucks Gap khakis brand name Axis, has resulted in a generation of spongy young men unable to express themselves as fully erect males. The film did get one Oscar nod for best sound editing, losing to The Matrix. But yeah, I mean, it was basically a complete failure in its original theatrical run. Wow. So did you guys see Fight Club when it came out? And what is your Fight Club history? I remember I was a junior in high school when this came out in the fall of 1999. I was doing a play and my ex-boyfriend 
came back from college with some friends to see the play, and they had just come from Fight Club, seeing the movie. The movie, not an actual Fight Club. Right, yeah, they didn't come from Fight Club, they came from watching the movie. And I remember being like... AV Club. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) I remember, like, being like, oh, I kind of heard of that movie, um... And he was just like, I was like, how was it? And he's like, I'm still processing it. <laughs> like, oh, like he looked blown away. And it was very intriguing to me because I didn't have any, like, inclination to go see it. Really? Um, but, you know, I was a pretty big film person then. But for some reason, it just didn't appeal to me. Did uh, you know it was, like, the director of Seven? Like, cause I don't know. Because you were obsessed with Seven? Yeah, I was obsessed with Seven. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. But I just remember his reaction and him just being like, I don't even know what to do with the things that I just saw. I eventually saw it, I'm pretty sure, on DVD. I think I've always liked it in a way where I never bought it on DVD until literally last year. So it wasn't, like, my movie. Like, I always felt like it was a really entertaining movie to watch, but I didn't know quite what to make of it. So I liked it enough to buy it eventually. (laughs) And I'll get into my current thoughts later. Yeah. What about you, Seth? I am relatively sure that I saw this in the theaters with my high school friends. Because, like, in 99, my high school friends, like Chelsea, who's been a guest on the show before, uh, and I would go to, like, theaters in New Orleans... Uh, and we would usually see, like, you know, indie movies or movies by directors that we liked. Like, we had a pretty developed taste in film at that time. So I'm pretty sure I saw it in the theaters and really enjoyed it. But it didn't really feel like it was a phenomenon until my freshman year of college at USC. I don't know if they brought it back to theaters more broadly, but it was huge on DVD. It was, like, the movie after The Matrix to me that, like, was ubiquitous that everyone had the DVD of it. And I know that they also brought it back to, like, the Revival House Theater that was next to USC for, like, midnight screenings. And so I remember seeing it multiple times in theaters in college and also, like, a lot of times, like, in friends' dorms or uh, dorm rooms and stuff like that. I don't know if I ever had the level of profundity... I don't know if I ever took the level of profundity from it that I had to, like, sit and process my feelings about it. Um, But I remember from the first time seeing it, really being fascinated by the themes in it, specifically around consumer culture and, like, capitalist culture, much in the way that I was really fascinated by the themes in Trainspotting that are kind of along those same lines, talking about the ways that modern life is kind of inhuman and doesn't allow us to express or have a human experience in our lives. Um, And also, I remember just from the jump being really blown away by Ed Norton and Brad Pitt and, of course, Helena Bottom Carter, who I think... At the time, that was... I don't think I'd ever seen her in any other movies, but I don't think I had ever seen someone give a performance in a movie that was like that. Um, yeah, her her character and that whole performance just really stuck out to me from the first time I saw it. Yeah, I remember, like, anticipating this movie. I think it was covered fairly heavily in Entertainment Weekly. Um, but I didn't see it in theaters because I was not 17 at the time. And again, like, as I've mentioned many times, like, didn't see this kind of thing with my parents and was not bad enough to sneak into theaters yet. And it also, I think it disappeared from theaters pretty quickly because it had been such a disappointment. But I saw it on DVD. I might have even bought the DVD before I'd even seen it just because I was, like, pretty sure I was going to like it. And I immediately, like, really loved this movie. 
had a sensibility that I had not seen in another movie. Um, did you have a poster in your dorm of Fight Club? I did. Because <laughs> I associate this movie with you. Fair. And I will, I will happily <laughs> accept that association. So many people had that poster specifically. Yeah, I think this movie was ahead of the audience in a way that some other movies around this time were. Things I liked like Buffy and Scream were both very meta and this was too, but in, in, a, in a slightly different way. And it was just a part of the wave of 1999 movies that kind of opened my eyes to what you could do with the movie that were doing kind of daring things. We've talked about a few of them on the podcast like American Beauty and Magnolia that just felt very distinct from movies that had come out before. But instead of those movies being much more like raw and emotional, this was very sardonic and very kind of cool. And I think my friends like this movie, which is maybe a little weird because mm-hmm. a lot of them were like smart females in, in high school. You know, that's not the prime audience for this. But even if it kind of missed the mainstream at the time, I think to our generation, it very much was already a thing. Like when it came out, especially when it came out on DVD, it was just a movie that you could quote to people and reference and people knew what you were talking about, especially in film school like Seth said i was a year ahead of seth but when we showed up at film school like i feel like this was the movie that like everyone had seen people had posters of i had a poster of like you could just reference this movie and i don't think that anyone had not seen this movie i imagine it to be maybe like what pulp fiction was like five years earlier which i was too young to really you know experience at the time but i think it was that movie for a generation five years later i don't think i know anyone who like hasn't seen this movie who's like our age like it just feels like a very ubiquitous movie Fincher, like I've said before, is one of my favorite filmmakers, and I think his work has really matured in a way that this movie gets remembered as sort of, I don't know, it's not as much associated with him as you might think. Like, it feels like it's a little outside of his aesthetic. I think it's considered, like, less mature or sophisticated than a lot of them. So I think the movie is very well regarded in certain ways and also very of its time in certain ways uh, in the way that people respond to it. So I was interested in going back to it and seeing, like, does it really hold up or was it kind of more of a flash in the pan at the moment that, you know, doesn't hold up as well. Does it hold up? (laughs) (laughs) We got there. We got to the question. We did it. So I've always liked this movie superficially. I think there's great performances, very iconic performances. The look of it is great. It looks like it was filmed yesterday. Still, it just like looks beautiful. The production design, especially of that disgusting house, the house <laughs> which I'll is talk amazing. about later. It's amazing. It's so impressive. I pretty much like everything about it, except I still feel like I can't get a handle on it. And I actually think that I liked it less than 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 before I watched it for this episode. And I think I'm bringing something to it where it just felt like so many characters in it are just like trolls. <laughs> like what we consider trolls online today. Like that's what they're doing in this movie. And it just like brought a bad taste to my mouth. Like it just made me think of really sad, fucked up people who are fucking up innocent people's lives for, for nothing. And I just can't like get a handle on this movie. And I ta- I watched it with my husband and I talked about it a while. I was like, is this movie like promoting this is it condemning it like it's a little like unclear which maybe that's the point of the movie but i just feel like i can't get a handle on what the movie is really really trying to say people that are just walking down the street and then they just like try to get in fights with them or destroying people's property one moment to me i didn't remember them like being ordered to go pick a fight with an innocent person that genuinely surprised uh, me i mean there's also tyler durden like pees in people's soups or fucks with the projectionist you know and putting in porn like 
those are just people that are just minding their business and just living in society, just making it day by day. And these people are like, fuck that. I'm going to like basically just be a troll. Like just try to make, try, try to pick fights for absolutely no reason. Like there's many examples of that. And they also like, you know, deal with credit card companies and like, you know, high establishment things. But there's also people that are like, they're just trying to fuck up people's day to day lives too, mm-hmm. which is basically what like a person that doxes people or, you know, sends people shit for absolutely you know just mm-hmm. like it makes people's they're trying to like hurt <laughs> people you know in some way for no reason or for a shitty reason anyway what did you think <laughs> no it, it's really i found myself thinking much the same as you did becky like one of the things i admired so much about the movie like when in the first times when i saw it in the moment when it was out and i really connected to it i liked about it that it felt like it was political but rewatching it now not really having watched it a bunch of other times like since college i saw that you never really get a sense of like what their ideology is like what they would do with power what they would do to make people's lives better and while i think the kind of spirit of the movie is spot on and kind of showing and having the characters like understanding that consumer culture has hollowed out their humanity and hollowed out their existence the violence of fight club and the kind of calculated mayhem of project mayhem don't really offer any kind of humanity and experience of being human that would replace that that would replace that vacuum um there's no real ideology there that tells us any kind of principles of what a better life would be for these people and at the end i do think they are just kind of trolls and further i rewatched it a couple times in preparation for this because becky like you like i i I like everything about it but still i don't find it a fincher movie that i absolutely unreservedly love because i do think fight club is kind of closer to a movie that suffers by the mechanisms of its plot like the whole like split person plot device of it I think was a thing that I really admired. I think it's pretty well pulled off. I think it's pulled off in an interesting way, if not like a very well scripted way necessarily. But I think that kind of split personality-ness is kind of used as a substitute for grappling with the deeper humanity of really any of these characters. The feeling I get of Fight Club watching it now is kind of more of a paint-by-numbers thing. It's really just these elements, many of which I like. I think there are some weaker things about it, like the soundtrack that definitely date it more. But I think, I definitely think overall, as far as Fincher films go, it's it's well done, but I don't find it a great movie. Chris? Yeah, I have a lot to say about... <laughs> Do you? Yeah, about like the themes of it, but I guess I want to start with more like the smaller aspects rather than the thematic stuff. I am so impressed by particularly like the opening act of this movie, maybe. I think that the opening of this movie is like fantastic. Like it's I just... Agree. You mean when he has the gun in his mouth? I mean, like, or... the whole opening acts, so, like, yeah. everything. Yeah. yeah, it's super intriguing. Like, yeah, I'm on board. I think this movie's so interesting, and just, it really feels distinct from a lot of other things. I think there have been some things that have kind of tried to imitate it in certain ways, or the style, but it still just has a really unique tone that I think would be really hard for most writers and directors to capture. If you watched the opening act of the movie, in particular, without the voiceover, it would seem like a drama, like a very serious drama. Mm -hmm. Like it's this 
it's the voiceover that makes it funny. And like the, what's actually happening is not funny at all. It's just his commentary that makes it like interesting and funny. And like the original draft of the script actually did not have any voiceover in it. And hmm. it was Fincher who was like, okay, we need mm-hmm. the narrator because otherwise it just feels like heavy. And so I think it's a really interesting tone to like, it's really dark stuff. Like it is like pitch black. The Super dark. Opening yeah. of this, like people dying of cancer. And him just like using them for his own gain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Marla Singer is like very pitch black when like when we meet her, she's just like seemingly has no like spark of life to her. She is like, kind of feels like death. She feels like death. Like, <laughs> yeah. Smoking and dressed in black. Meet Jane Black. Yeah. It just, it gives you like kind of a nasty feeling. Like you almost feel like dirty for like being part of this world. And yet I find it interesting that it's able to do that and yet also be very light in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and just very like the screenplay is so quotable like I think it's just like yeah. great line after great line like it almost like watching this movie particularly in that feels like reading the book and like you're just kind of imagining the book which very few adaptations actually capture the feeling of reading a book I feel like and being mm-hmm. so in the narrator's head it's probably one of the best uses of voiceover I can I can think of. Um, oh, absolutely. And again, exactly as you said, in a way that deepens everything that you're seeing and hearing. And yeah, like Fincher, you see him do it, it's like showing off in a lot of ways. Um, you can definitely absolutely. see his influence as a music video director here. Like it opens in the fear center of Edward Norton's brain. And basically like every cast member appears with a flash and that's a fear impulse that he's having. And just like the fact that you would open a movie like in someone's brain and like yeah. zoom out is just immediately like so interesting and also I just want to pick out like the the floating Ikea prices and all that that was I think that was in the trailer yeah but also just seeing that for the first time I was like wait holy shit you're allowed to do this in a movie <laughs> what yeah like the Matrix which came out in 99 gets a lot of credit for like bullet mm-hmm. time and all the camera work but mm-hmm. it, this movie was the same year and I think in its own way it was like just as influential and just as experimental the way that it went I love the blips of Tyler as he, like, subliminally appears. Throughout the movie. (laughs) Just like the penis. Yep. I don't know if it's more noticeable now that it's, like, in such high resolution. And I'm like, because I found that a lot more noticeable now. And it never clocked with me before. Yeah, I just I find this movie just so fun to watch in a way that most movies are not. Like, I want to stop and, like, freeze frame things or, like, it's playful. It's, like, it's yeah. almost like watching a, a game of a movie. It's, like, fucking with you. It, it, it's taking on this persona yes. of a movie yes. that's, like, fucking with you. Like, you have certain expectations of a movie, like, and it's breaking all these rules and, and very much like the characters. It feels like Tyler Durden directed the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, definitely agree. Yeah, and it's playful where the narrator is narrating and then you see flashes of things that are explain sometimes they talk directly to the camera mm-hmm. yeah like the whole thing of like him inserting shots of penises in movies and then there's a shot of a penis at the end of the movie like it's just <laughs> it is that how you mean how it's meta yeah like it almost feels like it was meant to flop in the theater and then be like this hit on dvd which it was like it has become like a huge cult film i think it's as you know iconic as most other 90s movies you know even though it had much less of an impact at the box office than a lot of movies we would consider like but it's just as well known i think because it is so rewatchable the dvd that came out was like two discs and it was one of the first like dvds that was really like a special edition and had all these like crazy features oh can we talk about the dvd menu yeah it's uh it starts off as never been kissed. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know this. And then it like is literally never been kissed for like five to ten seconds, and then it goes into the Fight Club <laughs> movie. 
It's amazing. Yeah, even the DVD is fucking with you. Yeah. Like, it, it's <laughs> at the time, like, ranked, like, the number one, like, DVD by Entertainment Weekly because it was one of the first that was really more than just, like, giving you the movie, you know? It was like... Oh, yeah, there's a million extras. And there's, like, alternate, like, angles of scenes. It's insane. Just on that level, like, I just love and appreciate this movie so much that it almost is separate from the themes and the and the stories and the characters. It just feels like it just came into my life at the perfect time for me to, like, want to be like, oh, hey, I want to, like, do all those fun things and have clever ideas. And, and, it, and it probably, like, in some way, like, influenced me to, like, start thinking more outside the box. I want to talk about that house. The dirty house. The dirty house that on house. Paper Street. I have a disgusting reaction to that house like oh yeah like looking at that house it's i visceral. wouldn't i wouldn't have wanted to film in that house like that's how <laughs> but that's in a it's good it, like it's a it's amazing how they put together that set <laughs> yeah even like i think the maybe most memorable scene to me of that is brad pitt taking a bath in that house <laughs> which yes. is a filthy filthy bath yes. and it's like what are you even doing You'll scrubbing yourself at the end. with that? Um, yeah, it's it's insane. Um, and it, like, because Seven also had a lot of very, like, all the crime scenes were very mm-hmm. dirty and grimy and gross. Fincher hasn't always done that. Like, I can't think of anything else that was, like, nasty after this. But it very much feels akin to Seven and just, like, you're wallowing in filth. I guess the fight scenes also kind of feel like that because they're so brutal and teeth being knocked out and, like, they're very visceral. Like, it, it's not, like, Hollywood fighting. It's it's very, the blood is, like, black. Like, it, it's just disgusting. Mm-hmm. Now, let's... Ready ourselves for guided meditation. You're standing at the entrance of your cave. You step inside your cave and you walk. If I did have a tumor, I'd name it's it Marla. Quiet place. Marla. The little scratch on the roof of your mouth that would heal if only you could stop tonguing it, but you can't. Step deeper into your cave as you walk. You feel the healing energy of this all around you. Now find your power at Slide. Can we please just talk about Helena Bonham Carter for the rest of this episode? I usually hate her in everything, but I love her in this, and I think her introduction is fantastic. It's so brilliant. Like that image of her in the glasses with the smoke coming out of her mouth. Yes. Um, it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful shot of, oh, of, yeah. of a character. I, I think that she is perfect in this role. Yeah. I mean, I think she's unfortunately been ruined by Tim Burton. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Just because she does this kind of thing really well in any kind of eccentric character. Like, I can see why you don't like her, but I also feel like it's mostly not her fault. It's just like, she's being very Helena Bonham Carter <laughs> and that's what is asked of her. And unfortunately that becomes like a parody of herself at a certain point. But in this movie, like, yeah, like her little top knot that she's wearing, like, <laughs> is just so, there's so many weird, like, odd choices she actually like requested her makeup artist to apply her makeup with their left hand so that it would look like slightly off. <laughs> That's interesting. I fucking love that so much. 
And I like her character is very interesting as well because she starts off as this kind of badass, seems kind of one dimensional. Like she's very, very watchable and fun. And then she keeps appearing in the movie and she's like having sex with Tyler Durden. And when you're watching it the first time, you interpret it one way. And that it's like weird that she's like hitting on Edward Norton as well. And it seems like she's being this heartless, heartless. Lazy. Yeah. And yet, like when you watch it a second time and you realize that Tyler Durden is Edward Norton. It's actually much sadder because he keeps, like, blowing her off and saying mean things to her after they've just had sex. (laughs) And it gives that character much more of an emotional life in the second watch of the movie than she has in the first. Absolutely. And rewatching it, like, a couple times this time, it came through to me, like, I I think she's kind of the emotional center of this movie. Yeah, like, she's actually, like, much more conventional than you think of her (laughs) the first time because she's actually just sleep... like obviously likes this guy enough to like keep coming around <laughs> and he is just well, something's wrong with her because she shouldn't oh, like this clearly, guy <laughs> many things are wrong with her yeah but she's also like sympathetic in a way that almost no other character in this movie ends up being by right. the end i just think it makes sense that she's like this fucked up person because only a fucked up person could like this fucked up person oh, absolutely absolutely i thought that was also one of the things one of the themes that like the support group parts of this movie help get across very effectively. Well, I don't talk about the Fight Club itself. I feel like this movie is definitely making a statement about men and masculinity because there's no women in the Fight Club. <laughs> women have rage or, you know, want to punch. Like, and none of these men are, like, going into boxing or MMA. There's something about these mostly white men, probably mostly middle class, having to resort to this underground violent thing, not only to express their rage, but also to, like, get hit themselves. They go there knowing I'm going to come out with, like, bruises and blood and maybe you'd go to the hospital and it's like they're drawn to that it's very intriguing i feel like i can't analyze that exactly but i think that's just a really interesting i think what i find the most interesting about it is that i would absolutely believe that none of these characters as humans would make that connection Mm -hmm. you know because i think what brings them all together is not we're men who want to figure out a way to be macho i think it's more just like a community of opportunity of men that are weak and broken people, Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't think that they would connect the very obvious ways that the things that they've been deprived of are connected to toxic masculinity and like the messages that every person who's born biologically male gets taught from birth. But I think those connections are directly there. But at the same time, I really don't think that the movie endorses macho-ness or endorses that in the way that Chris, that negative review very explicitly accused it of doing. So I think there's a sense in which this movie is kind of ahead of critics and ahead of the cultural conversation about it. Because I do think that an essential thing that talk uh, that just masculinity and the way that masculinity gets socialized into us, um, it deprives us of human connection. It deprives us of intimacy, especially with other men. Um, And so, especially rewatching this now in the ways that kind of in 2019, we have all these conversations about, you know, how toxic masculinity is. I don't think that our cultural conversation now is offering men forms of community that are alternatives to, you know, things that are violent. You know, and obviously, like, I don't think that there are lots of fight clubs that exist out in the world. No, I think they're chat rooms now, like, or message boards on, like, 4chan or something. Right, and I think the outlets that do exist 
are do take that human desire to connect and take that human desire to connect that is that is denied in the way that we learn masculinity and do turn it toward poisonous and toxic and horrible ends. And that's a shame. That was the thing that made me sad watching this Mm -hmm. film. Yeah, there are a lot of lines, mostly from Tyler Durden, that speak to the fact that this movie has much more on its mind than just, like, celebrating, like, dudes beating each other up and stuff. Yeah. One of the ones that came to mind with what you were just saying was that we are a generation of spectators. That these men are used to, and this is something Brad Pitt kind of said about too, but that they're used to rooting for teams and putting all their passion in rooting for teams, but never actually playing the sport. And this is Mm -hmm. them actually like putting themselves in there for once. Um, And I think like another theme of the movie is that like comfort is numbing. Like human beings are not necessarily meant to be so comfortable and have, you know, like everything worked out for them. Like when you, when you do, you end up, like, searching for something that's violent and very uncomfortable. And so, like, the more comfortable people are, the less they actually want that. I want to talk about all the things that Project Mayhem does, because I wrote out a list. Uh, On the paper, missing monkey found shaved. (laughs) Uh, They put gasoline or fuel in computers, and it exploded. I couldn't tell, like, what they were putting in the computers excrement catapult (laughs) good band name (laughs) again on a newspaper headline performance artist quote-unquote molested don't really know what that means there's bird shit on the cars of the car dealership magnets on windows of a video store r-rated airline safety pamphlets smashing people's cars picking fights with people minding their own business and smiley face and flames on the side of a building and then of course at the end they they ground a bunch of buildings yeah they roll a ball into a starbucks too right? oh yes like, yeah something like that okay. i did enjoy that one yeah. <laughs> that was pretty <laughs> even fun. i as a starbucks fan enjoyed that <laughs> Why are they targeting people just participating in society versus just targeting businesses or CEOs or or conglomerates or things like that? Again, this is part of the frustration I had watching the movie this time around is because it doesn't give any kind of ideology and it doesn't give any kind of explanation as to what they are hoping to accomplish with e- with each of these different actions. Yes. I think that's the point, though. Is that to, to me, this is a really interesting take on the '90s male ennui that we've seen in a lot of things. Clerks came to mind, where it's just like dudes who are unhappy with their job, but in that movie, they just sit there and complain about it, and they just now feel like super entitled. And it's like you have a job, you have a comfortable life, like stop complaining. But at the time, like, that was sort of the dominant thing for Gen X was, like, we're white and we're fine, but we're not very happy about it. (laughs) And also, like, a lot of the music that we've listened to, like Nirvana, the 94, like, it was all very angsty. And again, kind of not super sure what it was angsty about other than just, like, society. So to me, this is, like, that, but also a satire of that. So it's actually expressing a point of view about that rather than just being that, which I find, like, I don't connect to that in, like, when I watch a movie like Clerks or, you know, all the other ones. I, I'm just sort of like, oh, I don't, I wasn't part of that generation, so maybe I just don't quite get what the angst was about. But watching this, I, I do connect to it because it's 
critiquing that and it's like looking at it but in a way it's not admiring of it and I think definitely a lot of people have seen this movie and been like oh it's admiring that and wanted to emulate it but I don't think that's what actually the movie is doing and Fincher is pretty clear about not reveling in that yeah I think you're right and I think ultimately it is condemning it because we are following Edward Norton's character and at the end he's like well you're going too far we're going through his eyes and he thinks this is way too much and crazy what they're doing. But I think you're right that I it was depressing to watch this because I think men watch this like this is a cool movie. This is a fun movie. Look how hot Brad Pitt is. I want to be in this movie because it just seems so like real and fun and they are emulating it and they shouldn't be and they didn't get it. And I think it was depressing to watch it because it really did feel like today's trolls on 4chan and them, you know, fucking shit up just because like releasing people's nudes just to like fuck with them and for nothing else and it it just made me sad yeah hi you're gonna call up your rigorous investigation you're gonna publicly state that there is no underground group or these guys are gonna take your balls they're gonna send one to the new york times one to the la times press release style look the people you are after are the people you depend on cook your meals, we haul your trash, we connect your calls, we drive your ambulances, we guard you while you sleep. Do not fuck with us. So actually in this past year, Brad Pitt was selected as the mascot for the straight pride parade. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. There is a group of men who are also rather right-leaning. Really? Mm. No Bernie supporters in that? (laughs) Don't think so. And they picked Brad Pitt as their, like, official mascot this year, and Brad Pitt was like, no, and, and made them cease and desist. So he is no longer their mascot. But yes, he, and I think partially because of this character and just like, oh, he fucks hot women and stuff, you know, like, which is like not who Brad Pitt really is at all. Because when you see like the projects that he chooses and what he does in his personal life, like he's very open-minded and like said he wouldn't get married until it was like legal for everybody to get married in the country. So he's... Yeah, and he's utterly- a blended family. And uh, yeah, he is always working for charities and stuff. Yeah, but somehow people have put on some blinders to the truth and have decided to see truth as they prefer it, which is just because that it's Brad Tyler Pitt Durden. is a cool dude. It's Tyler Durden who is their white male um, hero. And that, I mean, it's not really the movie's fault, but I feel like just... It- so this is this is interesting. Like, I, I, I'm, I don't know if I can... I don't know if I can, like, run and fully take this leap. Um... Chris, hearing your perspective on this, I do find I really agree with you. I think this is kind of mocking how these men, even if it's in the form of Fight Club, even if it's in the form of Project Mayhem, don't have a plan. And they don't kind of... they. This is a movie about people not really finding their way. And that act at the very end blowing up those buildings is the kind of manifestation of that. And Becky, I kind of agree with you that... The movie doesn't necessarily do anything to, like, knock, boop that on the nose and say, like, these people are fucking losers and they completely failed at what they were trying to do. But I do think the story of this movie does not have class consciousness. And I think that if it did, it would have to be a movie that wasn't just about men. It would have to be a movie that was not just about, like, white people. Because I don't think it's, I don't think people in Project Mayhem, I don't think that all the people in Fight Club are as middle class and and well off as I think 
we've given the impression of. No, they're mostly working class. They're mostly, they are mostly working class. And I connected with that sense of ennui a lot, like of these people who were in jobs where they felt like they were dead end jobs and they knew they would never make enough money. And also that perspective of like, really the only thing that you can hope for is maybe you'll get an apartment in a high rise. Maybe you'll be able to fill it with Ikea furniture at best. And that's about the apex of what you can actually hope for. So I'm not one of those people who demands that filmmakers make every movie a message movie. I think there's a way in which that can easily become preachy. But in retrospect, I do think this would have been a movie that had more staying power and whose politics would feel a bit more grounded and less open to misinterpretation if there was some element of class consciousness to it and some kind of ideology to it that I don't really think is there. I don't think so. I mean, I think it's very much specifically about a certain class of people. The point is that these people don't have problems. So if you were to introduce women or more people of color or people who did have a genuine kind of claim to, you know, not being the mainstream in society, that would add like complication like they I don't think they would do this because they have their own struggles and these are people who don't have struggles and are manufacturing them for themselves oh I don't think the movie can answer that question because I don't think the movie spends enough time with any of the members of Fight Club to show us if they have actual struggles or not the character that Meatloaf plays to my recollection that's one of the only members of Fight Club other than you know Ed Norton and Brad Pitt that it really spends any time getting to know I don't know if that's actually like a case that the movie lays out or if that's something that we're bringing to it. Well, I think it's meant to be represented by Edward Norton and his voiceover and that he's sort of speaking for all of these men and that they are all, for the most part, white working class to like sort of middle, like kind of grunt work kind of people, whether it's in an office or Tyler's a waiter. And to me, it's like very specifically about those people and about white men and kind of a an exploration of what that Gen X malaise was about and in part like kind of a critique of it. So Tyler Durden is a myth and I, I found it really interesting just how Edward Norton creates him and like when it's actually, you know, him, but he isn't even able to do this himself. Like he has to basically become a schizophrenic person to even let this sort of id come out of him. On that note, I find it very interesting that Edward Norton is this meek, you know, not muscly, like you know, not effeminate, but just like kind of nothing of a guy. Um, He speaks in monotone and he, you know, he's not intimidating whatsoever. And then he imagines himself to be this cut, like confident. In the parlance of our times, he's a beta who wishes he were an (laughs) alpha. That's the word I was looking for. Alpha male. He has to imagine himself as this alpha male. He's a beta soy boy cuck. Yeah, he's not... It's, uh, what? <laughs> I, I don't Chris, know. you don't know the terms that the kids are using on the interwebs. Yeah, and I find that extremely deliberate and telling. And it's just like, mm-hmm. these these meek men think of themselves as, you know, better than they really are. And have this sort of, like, confidence that they, they wear as a performance. When really, like, I keep saying, like, the people that are, like, online, like, fucking shit up for people, like... I am sure they are not that intimidating in real life. They probably aren't you know super attractive or confident or have great jobs or something because then you wouldn't be doing that (laughs) yeah a much worse version of this movie would have made tyler durden like this like 
bro, like, I don't even know who would play him, but, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger or something <laughs> like that. Like, Tyler Durden, the character in this, is actually, like, a very weird mix of, like, alpha male with some weird, like, kind of feminist, feminist qualities or homoerotic qualities or just, like, weird, like, quirky things. He's wearing that fun robe. The fun robe. He wears oh, yeah. rubber gloves when he's having sex, which we don't even know what that's about. Hand condoms. His clothes are very, like, some of them are kind of masculine, but a lot of them are kind of pretty boy, kind of, like, fashionable. Flashy. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, 70s disco. And so I think that makes it, like, infinitely more interesting that this, like, sort of idealized male is not actually just, like, Bruce Willis or something mm-hmm, like that, that he's mm-hmm. actually, like, it is, like, slightly homoerotic. Well, or if not homoerotic, then homosocial. While I don't think it's macho, it is definitely a movie about men finding out how to connect with other men. Yes. So. Sorry? I make and I sell soap. The yardstick of civilization. And this is how I met. Tyler Durden. Did you know if you mixed equal parts of gasoline and frozen orange juice concentrate, you can make napalm? No, I did not know that. Is that true? That's right. One can make all kinds of explosives using simple household items. Really? If one was so inclined. Tyler, you are by far the most interesting single-serving friend I've ever met. See, I'm just thinking everything on a plane is single-serving, even the... Oh, I get it. It's very clever. Thank you. How's that working out for you? What? Being clever. Great. Keep it up, then. So, what this reminded me of, creating, like, the myth of Tyler Durden, like, reminded me so much of Kurt Cobain and how he was mythologized. And I guess that kind of put it in context for me is that this is kind of a movie about a bunch of white men of a certain generation, like, searching for a godlike figure. And in this movie, like, he wants it so badly that he, like, literally, like, imagines this person and kind of manifests him without even knowing. And what really struck me as interesting about that is is that Edward Norton's character does not realize that he is the villain of the movie, that he has created a monster and he doesn't even approve of the things that Tyler's doing because he tries to stop them in the end. You know, throughout this story, he would tell you he's the protagonist, that he's the good guy, but he's actually not. And I think that so interestingly reflects the subconscious of a lot of white men who just don't know that they're in some way the bad guy or, you know, not that they're malicious, but that they just, like, don't see that they are conditioned to kind of have this dominant experience that because they are dominant in society, they're kind of taking up a lot of room and excluding a lot of other voices and that that just isn't seen. And so I thought it was a really interesting representation of the way that like a lot of the trolls that you're talking about don't realize that they are actually the bad guy in in a sense, in a certain narrative of this. I thought that dichotomy was really interesting. I don't know. I feel like there's something deeper to it, though, because a lot of the characters in this represent people who are powerless in this society, but who still have things like white privilege based on just the fact that they're white, based on just the fact that they're men. And there's that disparity between the idea of having white privilege and the idea of having male privilege versus being an actual poor person in society. 
So again, it's like, I feel like there could be a version of this movie and it may not be nearly as upbeat and have such a great syncopated rhythm that I think this movie has. It might not be as enjoyable to watch, but I think it could certainly have been a richer story if it had more of a class consciousness to it. I mean, maybe my favorite scene in the movie, or at least one of them, is the scene where Brad Pitt goes into a convenience store and pulls out the clerk who is Asian and asks him, like, what did you want to do with your life? And so this is a character who is obviously not rich, not white, and I think kind of represents what someone else who wouldn't be in a fight club is doing. And that it does kind of have that point of view, because this character says he wanted to be a veterinarian, but he had to drop out of school. And so Brad Pitt basically says, I'm going to come find you and kill you if you aren't on your way to doing this. If you're not on your way to becoming a veterinarian in six weeks, I'm going to come find you. Yeah. Raymond, you're going to die. (laughs) Is that your mom and dad? Mom and dad are going to have to call up kind of Dr. So-and-so. Dig up your dental records. Want to know why? Because there's going to be nothing left to face. Oh, come on. An expired community college student ID. What'd you study, Raymond? (laughs) Stuff? Where the midterms are? <laughs> I asked you what you studied. Biology mostly. Why? <laughs> I don't know. What did you want to be, Raymond K. Hessel? <laughs> the question, Raymond, was what did you want to be? Answering, Raymond, Jesus. Veterinarian. Animals. Yeah, animals. Good stuff. Yeah, I got that. That means you have to get more schooling. Too much school. Would you rather be dead? No. Would you rather die here on your knees in the back of a convenience store? And so to me, that represented kind of what you're asking for is that there was another character in here with another point of view who like I think this character is like smart enough to like not be in it or just like doesn't need to be in a fight club. He doesn't have the time. He has to work. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. And that's what it is. It's like these people who have the free time to actually go and spend their time doing this. I, I don't think it's accurate to like ascribe these levels of privilege to these particular characters or even conceptually if they have like white privilege in the precise setup of this movie. It's not that they have that much free time. It's that otherwise they would have nothing to do with their time. Like, what Fight Club represents to them is is community that they don't have in any other form in society. And it takes the form of this thing that's not socially sanctioned. But it's a form of community that they wouldn't otherwise have. Much like for people in the inner city, like, gangs provide community and mentorship. And they provide an outlet for power that don't otherwise exist for people. But again, it's like the, the, the movie doesn't try to make anything more grave than that. Is this movie peak pit? Ooh. Yes, I, I say it is. It I is. say it is. I say it definitely It's peak is. Brad Pitt for sure. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned. I mean, he looks amazing in the movie. <laughs> like, oh my God. He's styled me. Like, obviously, physically, he looks amazing too, but he's also, like, styled amazingly. Like, and just this Very character. iconic and unique. Yeah, like, this character is unforgettable. And even though he's not necessarily the main character, he is. He runs away with the movie. Like, mm-hmm. Edward Norton is fine. I mean, he's by design a much more boring character, but you can easily, like, imagine this movie movie with kind of anyone else playing that role but Brad Pitt I can't imagine anyone else yeah he has this energy about him that I think was really great also in 12 Monkeys where he like Mm -hmm. looks super hot but he's like off kilter you're like we might have great sex but I'm kind of worried about him no he's he's got (laughs) manic energy like down 
to a science. And he's so able to project that so like effortlessly in this movie. I, I honestly, I still was really blown away by his performance. I actually thought he brought that to Seven as well in a way that I wasn't expecting because he's much more a traditional leading man in that. But he's still like, even though like most of his character is very conventional, there's just like certain line readings or like kind of twitchy things he does that make him Mm -hmm. a little bit like, like, I don't know, like, (laughs) are you stable? When he's like throwing the, like the book about the sins and he's like, cocksucker fucking like, it's just like, (laughs) it was really funny. Yeah, he definitely... What's in the box? Yeah, I was literally... I was thinking of what's in the box. Like, even that itself, that line reading, I think, is as legendary as that moment is. Yeah, not you to, know? like, get into something else, but his he has good line readings in, like, every he movie. He really does. He really uh, does. And in Glorious Bastards, I'll always remember, like, this man wants to die for his country. Oblige him. <laughs> Nazis. <laughs> and there's some, there's some good ones in uh, Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood. There's some real good line readings in that. And these are a lot of roles where you could imagine him being much more traditional. Like, the role doesn't always call for it. He seems to be bringing it a lot of the time, like himself. Brad Pitt, what a guy. (laughs) (laughs) He's going places, you guys. Edward Norton has a speech to his boss about shooting his coworkers, where today, I don't think the boss would have just been like, you're weird, and walked away. um, I think he would be escorted out of the building immediately. (laughs) Are you threatening me? No. Get the fuck out of here. You're fired. I have a better solution. You keep me on the payroll as an outside consultant. And in exchange for my salary, my job will be never to tell people these things that I know. I don't even have to come into the office. I can do this job from home. Who who the fuck do you think you are, you crazy little shit? Security? I am Jack's smirking revenge. So that was shot before Columbine. Mm-hmm. And after Columbine, it just, Fincher said this on the commentary, it was like, it played so much differently. Like people like beforehand were like, stick it to the man. And then afterwards, everyone was like, ooh, like mm-hmm. he's unhinged. And it just like had a completely different mm-hmm. reading. I, I wanted to mention that scene too, because that's very, very similar to a scene in American Beauty. Yes. Yeah. Where Kevin Spacey also blackmails his boss and right. basically quits his job, but gets like money out of it. Like it's not. It's not even just quitting. Yeah, that seemed to be like a theme in a lot of movies. White men quitting their jobs for additional money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought this was available to me as a career path. Yeah. Oh, man. It's so bad being me having a stable job. <laughs> like, poor me. Yeah. And I, I found that this is a very interesting, like, the, the, those two movies were the same year, as well as some other movies, like Magnolia, American Pie, that we've talked about on this. Like, they all had toxic men in them. And men who were very problematic in in certain ways guys men are the worst am i right am i right you are 100 percent. am i right right? (laughs) you know american beauty obviously like won the oscar that year and it was very much in the zeitgeist and this was considered not in the zeitgeist at the moment i think it actually ends up being more in the zeitgeist in retrospect but just like these stories of men bored of their jobs feeling trapped by the confines of middle class life I'm feeling emasculated. Um, I, I think this movie is interesting. In American Beauty, he feels very emasculated like by his wife, and there's a specific female character who's doing that. And the other like female 
in his life is um, Minu Suvari's character, who's like the object of lust. And this movie does not have either of those characters. Like Marla Singer is not a meek woman or an, like a naggy woman. Like she's very much a secure the character. This movie isn't examining like women really at all. Like she's an interesting character. No, it's not but about it's, women. It's definitely like all about men. And I find it interesting that both of these stories about men like this were written by gay men. Chuck Palahniuk is gay. Oh. Is he actually? Yeah. That's surprising. I did not know It is kind of surprising. Yeah, Alan Ball wrote American Beauty, so it is just interesting that two of these, like, kind of iconic representations of men in this era going through very similar things in very different ways in different movies, both were written actually by gay men and not by straight men themselves, even though they are very straight characters and represent that in a lot of ways. Is it just me, or do the chemical burns on the hand look like a vagina? (laughs) Anyone else? <laughs> uh, no? Sorry, I'm going to have to leave you to just flop around on that deck there. <laughs> yeah. I thought that uh, looked yeah. deliberate. Like a Georgia O'Keeffe burn pattern? Yes, and I, I will show you. <laughs> the soap is a very um, important aspect of this movie. Yeah. It was uh, advertised with the tagline, Mischief Mayhem Soap. Well, and that was like such a key part of the poster. Yeah. It's interesting. It is really interesting. And it's, you know, I I think much of its thematic significance is just in the joke of it, that they're in this grimy house, that they're, you know, hiding in in the filthy underground, and that their real cleansing is, you know, blowing shit up and knocking the absolute fuck out of each other. Yeah, I think it's more used for kind of irony than anything else, but it was kind of a, an image and an element of the movie that's that's really clever and interesting to me. Meatloaf. <laughs> Pro. How did they get Meatloaf for this role? Why did he say yes? I like him in the role. I, just, I think it's great. Yeah, I think I he's just, fantastic. I just think it's random. I think he's fucking fantastic in this role. Yeah, he came in to read and was just like knocked it out of the park immediately. Everyone was like, yep, that's that's <laughs> the guy. Does he act in anything else besides Spice World? Oh, no, he has. He's done big has parts he? in a lot of different movies. And, you know, it's like, in retrospect, it makes perfect sense that he would become like a random character actor because his music is the most theatrical hmm. like music. And, and of course, he got his like a lot of his fame from the music videos that he made for his songs because they would be him singing like often, you know, in costume mm. and makeup and all that stuff. But he's always been super theatrical and a total ham. There are things in this movie like bitch tits that I'm like, <laughs> can I still laugh at that? Like it, it, it was always meant to be edgy and like maybe now is like even more so or even maybe veering into problematic, but... I just find it incredibly it's funny. amusing. It's, <laughs> it's funny. That's the thing. It's like the first time I, re- I rewatched it, I'm like, oh, that's problematic. The second time, I just laughed. They're so it's big. Super it's funny. funny. <laughs> it's super funny. The guy who in the scene who's like in Project Mayhem, we have names after death, and his name is Robert Paulson. He's the star of Mindhunter. Yeah, Holt, Holt McElhaney. He looks so different. He's kind of hot daddy in Fight Club. <laughs> yeah, it was. He has a shirt off in one of the like Fight Club scenes, and I was like, oh, like that would never be a guy that I was like, take your shirt off. <laughs> Going to order up a ago. season of Body Hunter now. <laughs> Going to Holt that McElhaney. <laughs> um, every time I hear that Pixie song, I think of this movie. Absolutely, me too. Perfect me choice too. for the ending of this. It movie. really is. And it really strikes an interesting note because 
the narrator character is very against what Tyler Durden is doing by the end. And yeah, it does, I can see what you're saying. Like, it does leave you on sort of a, like, is this a good thing? Are we happy that all these buildings are exploding? Like, it's not really supposed to be a good thing, but you're not exactly mad about it. You're like, okay. And it just, like, strikes this tone of kind of wonder and romanticism that a lot of the rest of the movie doesn't have. So it it almost feels like, oh, cute, they're going (laughs) to end up together. Right. (laughs) Which is not where you would expect this movie to kind of end on that kind of note. Uh, The term snowflake uh, is attributed to... Mm-hmm. Uh, Fight Club, the book, as well as the movie. That's another way in which I feel like the message was lost on a lot of people yeah. who ended up, unfortunately, sort of embracing what the film is critiquing instead of realizing that it was a commentary on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why it was kind of a depressing watch. Just like what's going on in the world. And I hadn't watched it in a little bit. And I was like, oh, God, <laughs> I see too much of the today's world in this. That's why I really appreciated it this time is because it felt to me so much more relevant on a larger scale. Like at the time, I think it was always resonant in a certain way. I mean, it's pretty clear what the movie is about, obviously, in a lot of ways, but it just didn't feel as big of a deal at the time. And now that's something that has caused this huge global shift, you know, in the past few years, many consequences and and are affecting things on a very large scale that at this time they weren't, you know, they were subversive at this time. And it was this young generation that didn't at the time have like political power and now it has grown up to be middle-aged and that is i guess depressing but also i just it just made me feel like this movie is very important like that it's a really critical document just of where this came from and like if this movie didn't exist i I feel like there would be kind of a vacuum in in culture of just like something that you can point to and say oh like here's the movie that's about that and that Mm -hmm. this is where that came from and that i don't think the movie like caused any of this but it definitely speaks to it in a very direct way that, yes, is a little bit depressing, but is also, I think it's good that we have this movie and we can kind of explore those themes through it and kind of just clearly see where a lot of this was born, in a way. So in the year 2000, Gentlemen's Fight Club was started in Silicon Valley, including members of the tech industry still going on up until at least a few years ago. Maybe still going on. Gentlemen's Fight Club. Yeah, it's it's what it sounds like. It's a fight club. The only way to make that name douchier. Good God. And of course, it came from fucking Silicon Valley. Of course. The the world headquarters of douchebag, weak white male entitlement and reactionary impulses. And yeah, there's a reason there's no fight club. I didn't know this, but I feel like I knew this. In (laughs) Compton, they got other problems. Right. right. (laughs) Society is arranged to fight against them. There's no lady fight club because they would just talk it out. And also they got other problems. (laughs) Like... You and Chelsea can start Lady Fight Club where it's just manipulating each other and yelling very loudly. Mm -hmm. Starting Fight Clubs became popular after this movie, especially amongst Mm. teenagers. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) Because they got nothing to do with it. Exactly. 
several bombings and acts of vandalism have been connected to Fight Club and its themes. In 2015, two employees at a New Jersey daycare were charged with creating a Fight Club for children aged four to six and filming it and uploading it to Snapchat. Baby Fight Club? What? Fight Club Junior! (laughs) Lil Fight Club? So, yeah, kind of like we were saying, the movie had an impact. Not everyone got that it was a (laughs) critique. The American people always accurately interpreting films. (laughs) There was also a Fight Club video game that was basically about people beating each other up in 2004, which was poorly reviewed. Fight Club 2 was released in comic book form in 2015, and Fight Club 3 is coming soon. There was also talk of a Fight Club musical from Fincher, Julie Taymor, and Trent Reznor. <gasps> what? But uh, the last I heard about it was 2015, so I'm, I'm guessing it. I don't think that's happening. It fell off at some point. But <laughs> as we talked about, Fincher went on to make a lot of great movies, like some of the greatest movies of the past couple decades. What is your favorite David Fincher movie? For me, 100% Zodiac. Probably, like, early period would be Seven, later period would be Zodiac. I think it's the social network for me. Well, they're also, I have, like, literally ranked them, so it, uh, this is not a difficult question for me. <laughs> but it's, like, Zodiac and then Seven and then the social network. So, I mean, they're all, there's so many, like, they're, like I said, they are all, like, very, very good to excellent. So, yeah. you kind of can't go wrong unless you pick Alien 3. Yeah, don't pick Alien 3. Don't do it. Yeah. Even Gone Girl is, like, so fun. No, Gone Girl's great. Gone Girl's, yeah, really, really good. Yeah. And that was in 2014. That was his last movie. I believe he has no plans to do another movie. He was busy with Mindhunter, so he's doing stuff. He's doing stuff, but I want movie stuff. (laughs) I want more. Like, even Mindhunter, it was, like, two years between the seasons. It was, like, I mean, he's very methodical, so I will give him all the time that he needs but hurry up <laughs> with more stuff. <laughs> I want more stuff. Um, yeah, I think Mindhunter is great too. It's like kind of the main show that I'm interested in. That's yeah. out right It's now. pretty fantastic. Um, and I thought the second season like took a bit longer to gel than the first one did, but uh, I think it just, it's so fantastic to watch. Yeah. But basically anything he does is just for some reason, like every moment of it is so interesting to watch, even if it's not something particularly compelling happening. Like Mindhunter season one had a whole like subplot where the female character was like feeding her cat. And I was still like, I'm down. (laughs) (laughs) Riveting. Absolutely riveting. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, David Fincher, good stuff. Seven, good stuff. (laughs) Are we going to just go through every single one of his movies? Good stuff. All good stuff. No. uh, Well, so yeah. What? What recommendation would you give Fight Club? Like, how enthusiastic are you about it? It's a it's a great movie. I would say watch it if you're a younger person and you haven't. Because if you're an older person, chances are you've seen it. It just might put a bad taste in your mouth with <laughs> what's going on today. But it's a good movie. I don't know if I would necessarily tell anyone to, like, seek it out. Um, or at least not any more so than I would kind of any other David Fincher movie. Um, I think it has all the elements uh, that I love seeing in David Fincher movies, but especially rewatching it now, like I do feel like it's more of, oh, that's a really clever plot. These are really fun ideas for characters than it is like a really deep ex- exploration of any character's experiences. And I think he does that in particular so well in his other better movies um, that 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like, it's it's a fun watch, and it's still a very entertaining and fun movie to watch. But See it for Brad Pitt's abs. Totally retract my previous statement. <laughs> See Fight Club for Brad Pitt's abs. I third that motion. <laughs> and that's all the eight-pack we have time for on this episode of When We Were Young. On our next episode... We will be expressing our gratitude to the Almighty for the fifth day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> Which, as adults, we like because it ends the hellish work week, but as children, just meant we could spend two hours watching cheesy sitcoms. We'll be celebrating the 30th anniversary of ABC's infamous TGIF lineup from the late 80s and 90s which delivered such classic television programs as Family Matters, Step by Step, and Full House, and a lot of less classic programs that were canceled after one season. <laughs> Most of these shows are available on Hulu, so if you want to torture yourself along with us, no spoilers for our opinion, watch a few episodes before our next episode. And we'll join you for that the day that comes after Thursday. The When We Were Young podcast is produced by the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere that you get your podcast material and rate and review us with five stars or more. I've been Seth Pearson. I'm Becky. And I am Jack's Smirking Revenge.